Welcome to the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. My name is Ian Donnelly. I spent 30 years in the police and I did a lot of interesting jobs during that time at many ranks. When I left the police, I wrote a book all about my experiences, the title of which, unsurprisingly, is Tango Juliet Foxtrot. But you'll need to read the book to understand what TJF stands for. This podcast is all about British policing, the good, the bad and the ugly. If you're interested in what policing's really like, this is definitely the podcast for you. In it, I interview lots of people who've done some amazing things in policing. And I also give you my thoughts on what's been going on in the news to help you understand how it all works or doesn't work sometimes. Caution is advised as some of the topics can be distressing and there's some swearing from time to time. So, here we go. Hello folks, welcome to episode 49 of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot podcast. One away from the half century, my god, who'd have thought it, eh? But uh, yeah, it's a good feeling. So this week I have a really fascinating, I tend to use that word quite a lot, fascinating, don't I? But it is really fascinating speaking to all of these people, and this week is no exception. I have a fantastic conversation with Hannah Bailey, now Hannah, uh, was a police officer in my old force, Westman's Police, albeit I don't think we ever sort of met each other when I was serving or she was serving. We maybe passed each other in corridors or walked past each other in uh, police station yards without realising it. But um, she tells a really amazing story of so many things that are impressive I think about the human spirit uh, about someone's determination to succeed professionally uh, a determination to challenge themselves in ways that you know very few people I think do sometimes but the thing that really came across to me in this conversation was Hannah's amazing resilience her human resilience to deal with some pretty grim stuff that you will hear all about when we talk. But before we do, um, just one or two things from this week's news. Uh, the first thing, which was uh, put a smile on my face, was the announcement from the College of Policing that they are issuing interim guidance to say to forces that from now on, they should not be recording it non-crime hate incidents relating to ridiculous petty fallouts or hurty words i think is the uh, the the expression used by a lot of police officers things that are said on social media uh, on twitter facebook or whatever which causes someone to take offense um i strongly believe that that is a uh, all of that stuff suppresses free speech. It's actually, um, you know, anti-democratic, I think, to start uh, treating people as if they've done something wrong just because they've expressed an opinion that someone else doesn't like. So I'm really, really pleased to, to see that that's going to be the case. 
and hopefully that will free up a bit of police officer time to deal with what is arguably uh, about a thousand times more important and that is dealing with crime, God forbid. Um, so I was thinking about this today uh, in terms of so what's next on the hit list? So that's one of the so one of, that's actually one of the things I talked about in my book that um, I get really annoyed about. And I was thinking, right, okay, what would if if I could wave a magic wand, what would be the next thing that needs to change about the way policing is currently done to free up time and to ensure that police officers are more focused on I think the things that actually matter to the public. So. Having given that some thought, I decided that the next thing that policing should be allowed to do is to disengage from time-wasting members of the public who ring up to tell us about something or send us an email or send us some sort of complaint about something or other, and then they make themselves almost impossible to track down. Um, they say, oh, well, I can't speak to you today because I'm going out or I'm going to my mate's house or, you know, I'm sorry, um, it's not convenient or whatever. My view is if you rang the doctor and you um, made a sort of a, a request for a doctor's appointment, um, the doctor is not going to start chasing you when you fail to turn up for your appointment. So why on earth do the police do that? And the only reason they do it, as we all know, or anyone who's in the police knows, is in order to adhere to ridiculous home office statistical rules around data quality. Um, it's not because we particularly care about time wasters in the community ringing up and telling us about some that something that may or may not have happened. My view is if, if something has happened to you that is sufficiently serious that you want to involve the police, um, then you will make yourself available to speak to the police, to see the police, to tell them about it, to give them a statement and to follow it through. On my view is as soon as you start messing the police around, making yourself unavailable to be seen, uh, failing to respond to um, voicemails, text messages or whatever to get in touch, then we should be able to disengage immediately and get on with dealing with people who actually give a shit. Right, let's get into the interview. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Ian. How are you? I'm very well. Nice to see you. Nice to see you. <laughs> it's Hi. funny, isn't it, whenever you haven't actually sort of met someone before and uh, all you've seen is like their picture and exchanged a few messages and then you... I mean, it's it's weird, isn't it, this kind of online, um, uh, you know, way we do things now, but it, it it feels all right now. Do you find that? Yeah, really, really fine, actually. As you said, always a bit weird because you're sort of meeting people, but not quite meeting people. Um, <laughs> and I find when you meet them in person, it's different again, isn't it? Different to how you yeah. see them online, different to Zoom, different to in person. Yeah. But I work, I work lots now online, I'd say more than more than face to face now. So um, yeah. do you find that do you find it um, easy to establish a report? Which would you, if you compared face to face, would you find it? harder or easier or about the same to establish rapport with someone uh probably still easier face to face and certainly as a therapist because 
you just get all of those perhaps cues that you just might not get online. Right. Um, but it's still pretty good with Zoom. And, um, you know, you can, I don't do therapy over the phone. I do right. do it by Zoom or FaceTime so that you can see them. Right, okay. Um, so that's still, and it just seems to be, yeah, working great. And I enjoy it now. I'm not so scared of Zoom now. So <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> yeah, brilliant. Well, welcome to you? Welcome to the podcast. Yeah, so um, it's a it's a weird one, isn't it? Because I suppose if you think about it, I've been doing this for, um, I don't know, it was April last year, so a bit over a year, and I had a little gap during the summer. But So let's call it 12 months for want of argument. Um, and I suppose I started doing it by necessity um, over Zoom. Um, I tried a few other platforms, but Zoom is the one that definitely works best for me in terms of the recording and all of that. Um, and, um, I think, I think it would be much harder for me to do this if I was trying to do it face to face, just because of the logistics of it. You know, I've got a friend, Hugh, who does a a different podcast and he, he's got a studio. He's got a very sort of swanky studio. Um, and it's brilliant. It's all very, you know, impressive tech, technically, but you've got to physically travel to sit there face to face. So given that he's got guests who are from all over the UK who are having to travel to sit in a studio with them. I, when I'm knocking these out like once a week, there's no way I could possibly do that if I was trying to travel to speak to someone, you know? Yeah, definitely. It's definitely helped that for me as well. Like obviously my client base before COVID was pretty much all in the locality in this mm. i'm in warwickshire so in the in the locality mm. and now it's all over the country and i've got clients abroad and so i have to say for me it's been a really you know you've got to get some positives out of covid haven't you so it's been a really positive thing work-wise brilliant um, so yeah so i'm with mm. you it's so it's, let's get into let's get into you then so um if you sort of briefly introduce who you are what your background is and what you're doing now that would be great okay cool um, so, uh, so my name's Hannah Bailey, and I run my own business now called Blue Light Wellbeing. Um, I'm a psychotherapist and wellbeing coach, um, with with lots of other things I've sort of trained in and looked at, but those would be my two main roles that I see people under. Um, and so I help lots of people with mental and emotional health. I'd say about fifty percent of my clients are frontline workers mainly NHS and police, um, some retired from those roles, mm-hmm. um, some in the armed forces. Um, so yeah, and then the other 50% is is other members of the community. I don't sort of draw a line and say, I don't see other people as well um, who might be struggling. So, um, okay. but my background is um, from the police. So mm-hmm. from West Midlands Police. Um, and I joined in 1998, so December 98. And I was only 21, bless. You think you know everything at 21, don't you? <laughs> so um, I thought I got it all sorted and I joined the police and yeah. And then all the all the life stuff that comes at you then from joining the police. Um, so, and I loved it. I absolutely loved it, um, but became ill and unwell. Um, I'd say mentally and emotionally and then physically um, very poorly um, in 2011. And so took some time off mm-hmm. to um, try and get better. And then, but went back into the job 
um, but was very ill again um, within months of being back in the job and therefore made the decision to leave, a very difficult decision to leave. So that's kind of a bit of a... Yeah, yeah. That's brilliant. brilliant. (laughs) So, yeah, no, it just really sets the scene. And, uh, yeah, Yeah. there's tons of stuff there that we we can dive into. Um, Yeah, so um, let's talk about policing first in terms of your uh, police career. Um, And so what was it propelled you to go into the police in the first place? Um, stubbornness with my dad. <laughs> so I actually didn't have any desire to join the police in at all. Um, I've been at university um, studying physiology up in Edinburgh. And so I had no idea of actually what I wanted to do. And um, there's no police in my family. Um, it was not a career sort of path for me. And I um, was I had to change unis just to do with some family problems and stuff. So I had to come home from Edinburgh and I was looking to reapply to Birmingham Uni. And I had some friends in the specials. And to be honest, I was just doing a bit of waitressing and just filling the time. And if I'm really honest, the specials just sounded like a lark and just (laughs) sounded like great fun. Mm. And I just thought I'm gonna do that. So I did, but really fell in love with it. I was very lucky actually as a special because- that was in Birmingham, was it? Uh, that was, uh, yeah, West Mids as well. Right. Yeah, mm-hmm. And I was very lucky as a special, Ian, because I think some get a, a, a pretty rough deal, if I'm honest. And mm. I I didn't. And I was really sort of looked after and got sent out with regular officers. And so I really genuinely got an insight into the job mm-hmm. rather than um, um, how I think some perhaps um, don't get such a great a great welcome, perhaps. So, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and I just loved it. And I fell in love with it. And oh, brilliant. So how long so did you do that for? I did specials for about a year and then decided to apply for the regulars. Right. Okay. Wow. So um, when you went into the regulars, uh, that was what, 98, did you say? 98, yeah. Okay. And and that was obviously West Midlands again. So what what you were familiar with. And (laughs) excuse me, where were you posted to, first of all? So I was firstly posted to the L Division, so Chelmsley Wood. Um, And I worked there in response for about six years. Um, And I, I, I've read your books. I know how you sort of felt when you joined and you started, but Mm. I did absolutely love it. I just loved it. And I did have, I was very lucky again, a fantastic team. Yeah. Um, fantastic crew very proactive very sort of um competitive over thief taking and you know we just I did mm. just love it and I did just think I've really just found yeah as, as a lot of us would say I think a passion an identity a career mm. um, yeah. yeah well I, I often I often say that um that sort of period that sort of period of time was I think the the, the end of the good times I suppose and I don't know that sounds terrible doesn't it but I suppose the uh that was when police officers were able to just go on get a get on and be police officers and we we're able to exercise quite a lot of discretion about what we dealt with um we kind of told time wasters just to stop to wasting our time and uh, we were able to focus I think on the people who really needed our support uh, didn't get drawn into all sorts of other stuff but anyway I, I'm sort of I don't want to get too he- ahead of ourselves because we'll talk about you know how you felt as you went through your career but I definitely look back on those days an L district um, um, L division whatever you call it in those days when I arrived in the Westwoods in 2002 so kind of not that long after that mm-hmm. and it's a funny old area isn't it because you've got real extremes haven't you you've got yeah. you've got um, very wealthy 
um, Tory voting, um, Mercedes on the drive, um, big detached houses in Solihull and around the villages around Solihull, haven't you? Yeah. And then you've got um, a very deprived community in Chelmswood where you were working with all sorts of social problems, haven't you? Yeah, absolutely. It was it was hugely different. Um, and it used to be a bit of a joke, really, um, on the L Division that you didn't cross the A45. So, mm. you know, if you were sort of that side with Chelmsley Wood, that's where you worked and you didn't cross over to go over to, to Solihull and work over there. Mm. Um, and that was it was sort of this big dual carriageway that just split the two areas. So mm. and they were very, very different Um and you're right, very deprived. I think Chelmsley Wood was the largest council estate in Europe at the time. I don't know if it's the lid. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, so lots and lots of problems with um, drugs, with domestic violence. It mm. was, the, again, the highest levels of domestic violence, I think, in the country. Um, so a lot of domestic violence, a lot of drugs, a lot of um, crime. Mm. And, and um, yeah, lots of, but again, as you all know, lots of challenging and good policing comes out. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah, definitely. I think those are the places where you uh, really understand, you learn your trade, don't you? And um, yeah, it's funny because when I, when I later on, this is, this is fast forwarding way in sort of, I don't know, 2000 and, oh God, 2009, 10, I suppose. Um, I was, I went back to counterterrorism again. I was based at the counterterrorism unit, which isn't a billion miles away from there, is it? And um I used to go and get me lunch from Chelmsford Shopping Centre. Oh my God! Yeah. So that was a real eye opener. There, you know, I mean, it's a, it's sad, isn't it? Really sad. I used to feel ever so sad sometimes looking at some of the kids. Particularly, it's always the kids, isn't it? That get to you. You you look at um, the kids getting dragged around, getting shouted at, get you know by very. Uh, People living difficult lives, isn't it? That's the thing, isn't it? It's not that they're bad people necessarily. They're just living really grindingly difficult lives, aren't they? When did you, um, how long did you stay there for? So I was there for um, about six years in uniform. Mm -hmm. And then I joined CID there as well and did some CID at Chelmsley Woods and Solihull. Um, mm -hmm. I can't remember now, which is daft, but I think we just used to be based on one team, but we would also cover the whole division and we would move across. And yeah, yeah. And then I do remember being at Solihull, but I think that was on various teams. Yeah. We had a, a murder. I wasn't on MIU, but we had a murder, so I went over for that. Um, we had a, um, a some criminal gang that we formed a squad to deal with and that sort of thing that was over mm -hmm. at Solihull as well. So a bit of a mix, really, mm -hmm. um, spending my time there. Um, and then in 2010, I that was Paragon. It was around that time. Paragon. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. And um, so for those listening who either don't remember or didn't um, do Paragon, I think this, and I bring it up in because this is one of the things I would say the light started to go out a little bit for me with policing. Hmm. Um, because Paragon, what they did in terms of, again, detectives, I can't remember in terms of uniform, but what they did is they put every detective just really in a big melting pot of detectives. Doesn't matter whether you were, hmm. um, you know, a burglary squad, a drug squad, whether you were PPU, whether, well, I don't think PP, they created PPU out of Paragon, but whether you were child or domestic abuse, 
whether you were um, MIU, they didn't mind, they didn't care what your experience was, what mm. your interest was, what your passion was. Mm. They put you all in a melting pot and divvied you out across the force. Yeah. Um, and d- they said you had a choice um, because you could put down, you know, perhaps where you might like to work or whatever in terms of location or skill. But it wasn't. It was very clear that it you'd still get posted where we needed you to be posted. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I just found. That was probably the first time. And as you said, I know probably changes had happened a little bit before 2010. Mm. And the cuts had started to come in, hadn't they? And yep. changes with um, home office statistics had really started to come in. Yeah. Um, but that was where I really, really felt it in the police, that you were just this collar number. Mm. And really, we're not we're not too bothered whether you're interested, whether you're even good at it, Ian. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> whether, yeah, you're yeah. whether you're bothered, whether you're experienced, you'll just go there. And you'll be there and you need to get on with it. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah. I just thought, oh, okay, that's just not how I'd been treated or seen the police, luckily, mm. I, I guess. But for mm. the last sort of 12 years, that's not how I'd how yeah. I'd seen it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting because I, I interviewed um, a chap called David Heil um, and it, it'll, it'll, it'll be another you know, two or three podcasts time. It'll come out. And he and he was in the police for 30 odd years, um, had a, a fairly torrid time of it towards the end and, and is now delivering a lot of sort of coaching leadership uh, training based on psychological principles. And he was making that point that that there is this kind of one size fits all kind of mentality and um, and it can be very brutal for people. And it doesn't, as you say, it doesn't take account of what someone's aptitudes, interests are. Uh, it's just like, no, that's your job. Now I get on with it. And, um, you know, if you think about all those specialisms, the people, people tend to gravitate to those specialist roles for a reason. Um, because that's what they're interested in, isn't it? And, that, and generally, that's what they're good at, you know. So, so you look at you look at what's been going on in the Met uh, in, the, in the last few years with the um, disbandment of the uh, specialist teams around rape and serious sexual offences, um, and then those offences then just being picked up by sort of you know kind of standard CID teams. And surprise, surprise. Um, the conviction and um, charge rate um, goes through the floor. Um, victims get a terrible quality of service, and uh, and and rapists are walking away scot free, aren't they? So, yeah. so yeah. it's very frustrating, isn't it? Whenever you are, you feel like a bit of a pawn, don't you, in these kind of big organisational change programs? Sometimes, don't you? Yeah, 100%. And I just think if you ask somebody in um, sort of civilian life or community life, could you just apply for that job that you've got no interest in, no interest in or passion in, mm. and you haven't got skills and experience, but could you go, you know, don't worry about an interview, just go and do it, then you're never going to get the best out of that person. No. You know, and other employers wouldn't look at that. Um, and I know, Ian, there's a, there is a coarser part of policing that you have to sort of we don't always do a job that we love and there's a part of you have to get on with it and do it. But I think in these specialist areas, I think it's really important. And as you mm. said, you tend to be good at those areas. You tend yeah. to be experienced in them or gain that experience. Yeah, yeah. And or you join them new 
and you gain that experience from somebody else who's there who's got passion interest experience yeah and so yeah. you soak it up and you yeah exactly you know, exactly yeah. it becomes a it becomes a uh you know uh a, what is it they say virtuous a virtuous circle isn't it so people are happy in their job they're learning off more experienced people they get better at the job <laughs> and uh and the level of satisfaction um rises um you know uh in line with that so so obviously that period of time you start to sort of somewhat fall out of love with policing would that be about right yeah I did I think um I don't want to sort of say I I joined with um you know, just completely idealistic, like I'm just going to make all this difference and all this change in the world. But I think most police officers join with mm. a with a, an intent to do some good and some change and mm. and help and support those they're serving and look at, you know, justice and stuff like that. And, and for me, it really started to change. I got moved to, so under Paragon, I got moved to Coventry um, into 4CID. And yeah, I would say really, it start, I started to fall out of love with policing. That would be a good description. I didn't really enjoy going into work um, each day. Mm-hmm. I didn't really settle on the team. Nothing, again, nothing that anybody particularly did. I just didn't mm-hmm. really settle. Mm-hmm. Um, it was becoming shorter and shorter staffed with far more, not only far more jobs, but far more ridiculous hoops to jump through of the, mm-hmm. what they wanted us to do with those jobs. Yeah. Um, and it just became a whole melting pot. And I couldn't sort of tell you that it was, you know, a pinpoint a particular point, Ian, but, you know, it mm. wasn't overnight, but it was definitely over the next two years that mm. I didn't really feel like I helped anybody, mm. which is pretty soul-destroying when yeah. you're in a job like that. Yeah. yeah I constantly yeah. felt hampered from actually doing a good job. Mm. Um, and I'm trying to think if our paths have crossed it. Did, did, did our paths cross at any point do you think I can't I can't think um so you'd have been in Coventry in 2010 yeah. um I would have been in the uh, counter-terrorism unit then so probably not although I did take terrorist prisoners to um to Coventry from time to time but yeah. but no it's interesting because sometimes people say I've got a good mate um uh I'll give her a shout out Delphine um, Delphine was a was a PC at Coventry, and she always teases me now and says, "Oh, I can remember you coming in, and you know, whenever we see a senior officer coming in, we'd sort of hide. You know, it's just, <laughs> it's just ridiculous when you think about it, isn't it?" Um, but, I suppose uh, it depends yeah. on the senior officer, doesn't it? Really? <laughs> yeah, it depends. It depends. Yeah. It depends who it is. Yeah, definitely. But um, yeah, so you so you are in the CID in Coventry, feeling pretty demotivated and and is that when you sort of started to feel things going downhill from a sort of mental emotional point of view yeah really it was a combination of factors and I do talks now um for sort of police service and ambulance service and I think that's something that's really important to recognize looking back is because if there isn't this one big thing that you know perhaps you might be struggling with or need help with often it's a melting pot of stuff going on mm. and um a really good phrase somebody said to me is it isn't the elephant get, that gets you it's the ants and I thought that was a really good phrase and that's kind of a little bit probably how it was for me yeah, um, definitely. I've never heard know, that before but it's absolutely true isn't it yeah 100 percent. and I think if there is a big job or a big this or a big trauma a big crisis we we kind of probably would have got support or help with that 
um, but sort of the ants kind of get set in. And yeah, so I had, um, there was some stuff going on at home, family stuff going on at home. And I bring that in because again, I think actually we're quite resilient and I think police officers are very resilient mm. and we build ourselves up to be resilient. And that is a part of the job and it's really important. But I think when I had problems obviously at work and was stressed and overwhelmed and probably burnt out looking at, looking back at it at work, mm. um, but also going home and then stress and problems at home. I think mm. when you haven't got anywhere that you just mm. feel you can just let it all go, put yeah. it down for a bit, um, that's when it starts to really become sort of overwhelming. Yeah. Um, I definitely had, um, again, the, the sort of more fancy phrase this, these days would be compassion fatigue. I definitely started to have that. Mm. Um, I was trained um, in rape and sexual violence to deal um, with victims of rape and sexual violence and child witnesses of crime. So, and I just remember, <coughs> excuse me, just remember thinking, oh, I just don't know if I've got it in me to mm. be sympathetic again, kind again, you know, go through the go through it all again, support them all again, which is obviously an awful thing for those victims. I don't mean that I yeah, would have yeah. done that, but yes, I yeah, was yeah. starting to feel like that. No, I definitely, I definitely know exactly what you mean. Um, Cause just before that I was a DI on a public protection unit. Um, and um, I don't think, I don't think I ever suffered from compassion fatigue as such. I know what you mean when you say that, but what I do think was, I think that the, the, re, the reason we didn't was probably because we had so much dark and inappropriate humour in the office um, that we just had such, an, such a laugh, um, sometimes about some of the most awful things, dreadful, dreadful things. Um, but it was definitely a way of diffusing that, um, tension and um, yeah it's really interesting one isn't it and this is one of my one of my hobby horses at the moment is that as I see the fun being sucked out of policing yeah. and every everyone needing to be so careful about everything they do everything they say um, I think if they could have them, their thoughts monitored, they would be doing it. Yeah, hundred percent. Um, and I think that is the most dehumanising experience for people, um, particularly people doing a stressful and often dangerous job. And I do wonder if by doing that, they're going to make the job impossible potentially. You know? Yeah, I completely agree with you, and I think. Um... And it's sort of famous, isn't it, for, for that dark humour and the black humour, but it's so incredibly important. And we and we know laughter and joking and that is actually we know scientifically now that's a study for release and mental health and well-being. So it's not just something the police want to do and and laugh inappropriately. We know how important it is. Um, and definitely that that was being sucked out of us and it's more even more now I would still say we could still have banter in in the office um but it's definitely as you said going more and more but the I problem, think the problem okay. is Hannah it only takes one person does it it only takes one person in an office to decide that they're unhappy about something and then make a complaint and that's it the whole office then gets investigated doesn't it and rather than turning around to that one person and saying get a grip of yourself grow up 
this is just something that police officers have done for the last since 1829. Um, it's a coping mechanism. And if you don't like it, then I suggest you're probably in the wrong job. That's what should be said to those people. But unfortunately, you get a situation where a complaint is made and God help anyone if there's even the tiniest sniff of, you know, a protected characteristic being kind of taken the mickey out of or anything like that. Then, so yeah, anyway, sorry, I'm, I'm, on, my, I'm on one of my hobby horses now, aren't I? <laughs> But also, I don't know about you, Ian, but if I had genuinely offended somebody from what I'd said, I'd be so happy to say, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry I offended you. know, I wouldn't have known that I'd offended you. I'm really sorry. But why can't we leave it at that? Why can't we leave it as, I'm so sorry, didn't realise that? Because it, it touches a nerve sometimes, doesn't it, for people? You yeah, don't know what's going so. on in their house, in their life. You don't know what's going on for them. Hmm. It can touch a nerve that you or I am... 99% of officers would never mean to offend or upset anybody. So why can't we just say, if it's a genuine, you know, upset, mm. I'm really sorry, didn't clock that at all, hope you're all right. But yeah, yeah. why we don't leave it there, do we? It has to be a formal complaint, an investigation. You can't say this. And as yeah. you said, almost your thoughts monitored. We just haven't got any balance with it and just yeah, yeah, you know, just yeah. logic and common sense and just go okay I'm so yeah, sorry that yeah, definitely. yeah so talk so talk me through um you know that period then in terms of um so obviously you had stuff going on at home you're feeling under pressure at work and um, what what sort of impact did all of that have on you sort of in terms of your emotional health so um yeah, I definitely, if you'd asked me, what's interesting, Ian, is if you'd asked me at the time if I was happy, I'd have just said, yeah, because sort of on the surface of sort of married life, two kids, a job I loved, and I'm putting inverted mm. commas there, um, mm. probably didn't love it at that moment, but a job mm. I loved, I'd have said, yeah, you know, I'm fine, I'm happy, or I probably would have said I'm fine. Um but I didn't stop, I guess, ever to just look at that, if that was actually true. Mm. And Looking back now, I would say to you, I didn't sleep. I was very tearful, so anything would make me cry. And of course, as a, and I will say as a woman in the police, the last thing you want to do is cry at everything. You can't burst into tears at anything or look like the sensitive one or anything like that at all. Mm. So mostly that kept a lid on it at work and would, would be in tears at home. Um, and just felt run down, stressed, um, intolerant, irritable. Mm. So there was lots of sort of signs there, but nothing. And was that um, having an effect on your work, on the actual quality of your work and all of that sort of stuff? I think so. I mean, you'd like to think you're still always doing your best, but in terms of, um, I guess, the compassion fatigue thing, I think actually, I think I would always, always have compassion and empathy every mm. single day of the week for, and you know what I mean here, Ian, like our genuine victims, <laughs> Yeah, 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 yeah. Crime. I would have that till the cows come home. But mm. you know, we were dealing with endless, endless bollocks. Let's be honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. now yeah. the Home Office statistics said that you couldn't say yeah, get, this get bollocks. Get rid of it. Yeah, yeah. Get yeah. rid of it. So actually, we were spending so much time yeah. investigating yeah. bollocks. Well, that was a particular. Well. That was a particularly. That was a time when common sense um completely left the organization mm -hmm. and um and i remember you know just sort of backtracking a bit back to sort of the uh late 2000s so i was an inspector in stetchford at the time 
And um, yeah, I remember, and I talk about this in my book, you know, when Sir Ronnie Flanagan came in, he was, he'd been given a piece of work to do by the Home Office to look at trying to reduce levels of bureaucracy. And um, I mean, it was a massive poison chalice mm-hmm. that had been given because um, he identified all of the things that we knew were wrong with the organisation and are still wrong today, i.e. the fact that you've got this rigid home office policy around crime recording and incident resolution. So how you resolve a call for service from the public. Um, there's so many hoops that they expect officers to jump through now. Um, and, and there's no at no point is anyone ever allowed to say, is this bollocks or is this something that we should be giving a gold standard of service to? We've now created a situation where everything, everything's a priority, which means nothing is a priority. Priority, yeah. You know, so yeah. So, so yeah, so you were, you were feeling, um, yeah, at that time kind of overwhelmed by the bollocks. I suppose yeah. if that's um... yeah, and because it, if you're an officer that you know wants to give your all to these really important jobs that should have your full attention, that should have a hundred percent, should have you know everything that you can throw at it, then but actually eighty percent of your work is sort of almost trying to prove it's bollocks so that you can yeah write it off as bollocks. Then yeah, that's yeah. really you know it's just not using anybody's skill. No. or passion or interest yeah, yeah, in, a, yeah. in a positive way um yeah, yeah. In, a, in a constructive way and just for and for people listening who don't really understand this um before all of this regime this this very mm-hmm. one size fits all regime came in from the home office what we would have done would be there would be multiple layers of triage within built into the system which would have started right from the first moment a member of the public either called the police, walked into a police station or walked up to an officer in the street, whatever means that they used to tell us about something, um, there would have been um, common sense approach used at every stage of the way. So, so um, if, if, if a call handler, an experienced call handler would probably read between the lines and go, this is bollocks, I'm gonna give them words of advice and say, right, this is what you need to do. That's my advice to you. Goodbye. Um, uh, and if, if it didn't get through that sort of layer of triage, then the, 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 the probably the supervisor, the sergeant who picked it up, it would be allocated to a team probably. And then the sergeant would have looked at it and gone, well, that's a lot of old bollocks, isn't it? Um, and, and would have got rid of it at that stage, probably make a phone call to the person and sort of say, hello, Mr. S- Mr. Smith or whatever, I understand you've been having, you know, issues with your next door neighbor's cat shitting in the garden or something, um, you know, and um, uh, and they would have just got rid of it, wouldn't they? They got rid of it. So what that left you with was the stuff that actually needed some proper attention, didn't it? Yeah. And that would have been then allocated to people like you um, to, to then do an investigation. And, and then that kept, proper victims of crime happy didn't it you know 
And what, again, Ian, if people are listening who, you know, aren't in the police service, is that people forget there's probably sort of fairly two almost clearly defined groups of people who call the police. And there's people that almost never call the police ever in their life, you know, sort of literally yeah. never done it before. And to phone 999 is quite a quite Massive a thing. thing. Yeah, 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 exactly. And they don't want to disturb the police. They don't want to bother the police. And when they phone, it is usually for something really serious or really important. But I think a lot of people don't see that we had lots of people call the police daily, certainly weekly, really just to help them sort out their life. And whilst that is, as you said, almost sad in a way, and they had Mm. other problems that Mm. should be hopefully helped and looked and supported over, they weren't police problems. And actually, you know, I think a lot of people don't see that. And that's where that common sense and sort of um, supervisor sometimes coming in to say, this is somebody who calls the police, you know, four times a week mm. because of actually very minor things. And this yeah, is yeah, one yeah. of And God and God help you if if today that that time wasting person who mm. just can't sort their life out, and there's a lot of them out there, aren't there? God help us if they then throw in what something that could be a criminal offence, possibly. So they'll say something like, you know, in the in the course of giving you that tale of woe of how the you know they couldn't it had an argument at the uh so at the, at the you know the council office or something like that and then then I went home and I looked in my bag and my money was missing or, or something like that and, and I'm sure that they stole it the the man in the office stole it or something you know it's just a load of old rubbish wasn't it and um or 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 there'd be some minor suggestion that the next door neighbor having a dispute with the next door neighbor and then the next day they'd noticed that the fence was broken one of the bits of the fence was broken so they put two and two together and thought that right it must have been the neighbor who broke the fence and and then you know in old in old money we would have said i'm not interested frankly we've got more important things to worry about sort your sort your shit out um you know words to that effect and and we will if you if you genuinely got a problem, we'll come and sort you out. We'll come and help you, but do not bother us with this stuff. Um, whereas I, now that would be out, that would be recorded as a criminal damage that had to be investigated. Which surprise, surprise, there'd be no evidence, and probably find the fence had been broken for probably the last two years. You know. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. It's, it's it's just madness, isn't it? Madness. Yeah, and and you can see why people are losing morale and losing passion and interest. And and I think the problem came in is that because we were allowed to use common sense and we were obviously what would happen somewhere in that common sense is we would get it wrong and we would. And we'd read the situation wrong or the call handle would read the situation wrong or the supervisor would because we're human beings and sometimes you're going to read it wrong and cock up and miss something. And that is... But most of the time, most of the time we got it right, didn't we? Right. And I would, I don't know about you, but I'm going to say 95 to 99% of the time we were getting Easily, easily. I totally agree. Easily. But we became this and we have, I think this is culturally across the board, we've become this terrified organisation that we are terrified of getting anything wrong, missing something, upsetting somebody, you know, sort of getting a complaint, getting this, and we're terrified of it. So now we've created policing 
that literally tries to cover every single eventuality, every yeah. single complaint, every single phone call. And you and I know, Ian, it's just not possible. It's That's impossible, not, isn't it? yeah. it's yeah. not human beings. It's not yeah. life. Yeah. And it is tragic if it goes wrong. Of course it is. Yeah. But well, the sad thing was, you know, whenever I left, um, you know, I was working in, in, um, uh, in mission support for the last couple of years of my service, which was like running the, you know, the, the force day to day, you know, as a team of five superintendents. And, you know, I used to occasionally, uh, you know, on a lit or when it was quiet, you know, and I'd sit and just go through logs, go through um, dozens and dozens and dozens of logs. And I used to go absolutely crazy with some of the stuff that was sat there unresolved that had been, we'd sent officers out maybe half a dozen times over maybe a two week period to try and resolve this thing that was clearly a load of bollocks. And, and I used to just write on the log, just sort of close this log. You know, this is, we've wasted quite enough time on this. The, the, the caller has been uncooperative on numerous occasions. Um, but, but then you would get a sergeant in the control room, putting another comment on saying, with respect, sir, we still haven't complied with home office crime recording standards yeah. here. And I just think, oh my God, talk about revenge of the nerds, isn't it? It's, it's statistics, statisticians yeah. who've just been, who just, you know, talk about the statistical tail wagging the public safety dog, you know? Yeah. And I, I've got a, Similar thing is that I remember because I was um, when I was pregnant, I was on light duty. So I used to go to the daily management briefings and we had a fantastic superintendent on the L at the time. And um, it was winter and there was something like 37 open locks on snowball fights. I mean, like, you know, just come on. I can't believe there's even a log created for them. But there was 37 open logs on snowball fights and they were sort of saying, oh, we, we can't leave these logs open and someone's got to go to them as in that they'd happened the day before and he was, you know, know, and, know, um, know. And the superintendent said I want you he said I was out I was out um yesterday with my kids and my family he said doing snowball fights he said to put every one of them down to me and he made the, <laughs> he made the um and they were they were sort of fuming they were like sir and he was like no I want you to put every single log down to me. <laughs> they had to put every time that it was the superintendent. <laughs> but, no, that's that's yeah. true leadership. That's true leadership. But yeah. I'll tell he, you what, the only reason he could do that, he, I'm assuming it's a he, you might have been yeah, it um, The only reason he could do that is because the superintendent, if you can imagine if an inspector had tried to do that or right. a sergeant had tried to do I that. Know, or me it? or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 There'd be all that sorts of shit me. flying around. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. back to you again. Yeah. Um, so at what point did you find that you were just you just couldn't do this anymore? Well, if I'm honest, what then happened is um, I physical health intervened. So I don't know how long it would have gone on mentally and emotionally, and to be honest, so probably much, much longer. Mm -hmm. um, but I found a lump and I um, was told very quickly that I'd got breast cancer. Um, Mm -hmm. So really that became um, obviously my priority yeah, yeah. Um, at the time. And I think, again, what I do look back at there is that I was 34, so pretty young, no cancer mm. in the family, nothing like that at all. Um, outwardly, I was really healthy, as in mm. not overweight and went to the gym, 
didn't mm. smoke, barely drank. Yeah. Um, probably my diet wasn't very good being a shift worker. But other than that, yeah, you know, yeah, I was yeah. really healthy, didn't yeah. have any underlying health conditions. So this was like an, the hugest shock ever. Mm. And it did make me think that mentally, emotionally, I must have been in a pretty shit place, to be fair, mm. if I'm mm. now this sick. Yeah, um, yeah. With no obvious physical drive towards it at all yeah, 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 yeah. um and but also in what hit me is I was off um only that first week after, after I've been told and um you know just pretty devastated and frightened and all, all those feelings that that you'd expect with that diagnosis and mm. but actually what I felt was relief and I really? thought I am relieved I realized that that hit me very quickly that I wouldn't obviously I'd be off long-term sick and I knew that mm. and I thought I'm relieved that I haven't got to go into work and do it really all oh my god yeah and that's such a that's well that speaks volumes doesn't really yeah. about where you were mentally in terms of your relationship with the job really yeah yeah and I did think it was a bit of a light bulb moment of geez Hannah it must be pretty shit if you are relieved I don't mean I'm not going to say Ian I was relieved I've got cancer but yeah, yeah, I, was, no, I, know, I, was, I know. I know yeah. what you mean. I know what yeah. you mean. But I, mean. I was relieved, and the other thing that hit me is that I was relieved that I had a good excuse, a good reason mm. to be off sick. And that is another. I think any police officer listening will understand that 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 you know that never ever at that point, maybe not so much now, but at that point in 2011, I never would have gone off with stress, Ian. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I just yeah. wouldn't have done it. Yeah, um, yeah. And so, and I did think, because I knew all my files and everything would be, you know, divvied out to everybody. Mm. And I actually did think, good, one, good. And two, they can't slag me off because mm. I'm off because of cancer. Mm. And mm. it was like a good enough reason to be off. Yeah. I know. And that's terrible, isn't it? Because yeah. um, if you think about, if you had, you know, I've been there as well, you know, where um, if, if you just don't feel that you're coping um, and you've got stuff going on, maybe at home as well or whatever, whatever the reason is, whether it's all work related or whether it's home or whether it's a combination of both, um, you know, it's potentially such a shameful thing for police officers to turn around and say, I'm just not coping here. I'm just really not coping. And um you know, I know I'd, I had some I had some brilliant bosses along the way. I also had some shocking, shocking bosses who I wouldn't I could never have said that to yeah. because they would have just looked. I just know they would have looked at me as if to say you pathetic, pathetic, you know. And yeah. So anyway, so you so you went off sick um, and presumably you obviously had treatment. Yeah. Yeah. So I had um, surgery and um, chemotherapy and I was off for nine months. And I do want to sort of say fair play to Westmoreland's Police, actually, because they got nine months full pay. And I don't know many jobs that you'd get that. Mm, um, mm. And in that sense, I would say they were really supportive. So I was very lucky. Um, but I didn't get great support um, from my supervision. Mm. Uh, again, Ian, if I'm honest, nothing awful, just... A bit out of sight, out of mind. Yeah. You know? And yeah. I think had a million other things for them to do and jobs and meetings and figures and all that to meet rather yeah. than 
looking after your staff but yeah, yeah. I, didn't, I didn't get great and if i if i'm being honest if i'm self-reflective um i've probably been that person at, at times in my yeah. career you know where i had staff who were off long-term sick and the thing is you're just so busy with all the stuff that's going on and it just becomes an i know this sounds awful but it becomes just another thing on the to-do list you know it's just oh shit yeah. uh, you know so i've i've probably been guilty <laughs> i'm sure i have yeah yeah I agree with you. And at first it's all really, you know, hurtful and this, that and the other. But actually I did make my peace with it. I thought, I just think they're so, as you said, there's a million other things that are literally in front of their face that they've got to deal with and got to tackle and another meeting. And actually I wasn't, I just wasn't the priority. I was at home. I wasn't mm. there. Um, it and, was, you know, and you know what, and you know what, you know what becomes even worse than Hannah is that, um, when you when you haven't been supporting a member of staff who's been off sick I didn't have I never had anybody who was off sick with cancer um as far as I'm as far as I know um but but they I did have staff who were off sick with other you know quite serious illnesses of one sort or another over the years and and the problem is um you know that you need to be doing more you know you know in your in your heart of hearts um but the longer you put it off for, the harder it then becomes to actually then fa- kind of face them, so to speak. I know that, yeah. Does that make yeah. sense? And so yeah. I think I think there'll be a lot of supervisors out there will know exactly what I'm saying when I say that. You know, I I I I definitely had some guilt about maybe not being the best boss of someone who was off sick for a long time that I could have been. You know. Yeah. And I think, Ian, as well, talking about sort of mental health and emotional health in the police, and I know mine was a physical illness, but obviously had huge ramifications of mental and emotional distress. Hmm. And I think obviously a lot of supervisors aren't trained in that. They don't have their own support in that. They don't have their own experiences of that. And definitely my gaffer who had to call me, um, bless him, he obviously got an email once a month from Ock Health to say what's happening with this officer. Where is she still off? Where she, you know, and he had to fill in this form. So I'd get a call once a month and then he'd just sort of say, Hey, how are you? And anyway, he said, I've got this email from Ock Health like every month. And you know, I just, if I'm honest, Ian, I, as I said, I don't bear him any ill will. He was a nice guy. I just don't, I think he was out of his depth mm. and incredibly busy himself and then he got this reminder email through and it was like shit I've got to I've got to fill in what's happening with this officer I'd better call her and as you said I think it had gone each time he probably thought oh I ought to phone her more yeah and didn't and then it goes the month yeah yeah but you know what in the same way that the police are overwhelmed by bollocks from members of the public that we shouldn't be dealing with and this is one of my gripes. I think the reason, part of the reason why I think supervisors maybe aren't as good in these types of scenarios, the sort of scenario that you're describing, is because so much time is also being required of those supervisors to deal with members of staff who actually need sacking. Um, so we've got yeah. we've got people in the organization who are a huge drain on supervisors um, from a performance point of view. Um, and it, or it could be a combination of performance that then, you know, if they then get put on a development plan or something, then they'll go off sick 
with stress and then it just turns into like a grievance and then it's sort of you know and you and if you if you're unfortunate enough to have maybe two or three of those people to have to try and manage the, the hannas of this world don't get a bloody look in which yeah. is just wrong isn't it yeah yeah but understandable Ian because they are probably so worried in this t- in this day and age that it had become of getting it wrong being sued of getting complaints that actually that that officer that you're trying to deal with and probably as you said get rid of but having to do legally and find the evidence and cover the evidence and cover your back and I don't know record each meeting and pocket notebook stuff but actually as you said I was almost the the one that didn't need or I mean yes I could have done with that but as in didn't need that attention in the same Mm. way Mm. so you're off for nine months um and um (laughs) in terms of your illness um if you don't mind me asking did you were you we did you get sort of uh would you go into remission then or yeah so I was in remission then and decided to come back to work and I had I had started to look at you know what's gone wrong how stressed are you how unhappy are you if I'm really honest how you know, what could be better when you go back to work? I'd started to look at that a little bit and my physical health a little bit. How could I look after myself a bit more? But I went back to work and um, like a phased return sort of thing. And again, hmm. in I'd say the job were nice and supportive, um, but almost again out their depth, sort of what do we kind of do with this officer sort of thing? Hmm. And um I remember, for example, one of the things that really stressed me out going back to work is that I was wearing a wig because all my hair had fallen out. Mm. And I was wearing a wig and basically didn't want anyone to know. Although looking back, that's daft because probably everybody would know. But And I didn't want to be in the block with a prisoner or whatever. What if it came off? What if it moved? Mm. What? And that was actually one of my biggest worries and just didn't really have anybody to say mm. it to. I get that's my responsibility too. But there wasn't that kind of support it was just do your phase return and let's get you you back thing so yes I went back but uh then within three months uh my cancer had come back oh Um, god yeah so I had um another lump in my breast um and uh was off again oh bless you yeah so it was a really really shit time oh god well I can't even imagine I can't even imagine how you must have felt whenever that happened yeah and um yeah just in fact if anything possibly it was more of a shock the second time because um you know you think you've done it and you have all those words and phrases don't you I've beaten Mm -hmm. it and this that Mm -hmm. the other and Mm -hmm. celebrating that you were a year out of cancer and that you're back at work and all that and and yeah so it was and actually I had worse news the second time because it had mutated and I had um like quite a rare aggressive form of breast cancer the second time right um so so I had to be off again and I really really then did have to just reevaluate my life a little bit Ian and yeah yeah I was going what I was doing in terms of treatment yeah also what I was going to do long term and how old if you mind asking how old were your kids at this stage (laughs) uh so 10 years ago so Tilly was four and Jack was seven oh god yeah so it was a really and my husband's in the police as well so right just 
a huge amount, a huge amount of stress. And yeah, oh my god, yeah. And distress and fear and yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, so did you have another round of chemo and all of that kind of stuff? No, actually, I didn't. Um, I because I'd got this rare aggressive form of cancer. I was somebody who wanted to know all the details tell me the statistics tell me what i'm having tell me what drugs i'm having especially the second time you know it mm. hadn't worked the first time mm. so why am i having chemo again if it hasn't worked mm. um you know what are the statistics my prognosis and the oncologist said to me the chemo we're going to give your type of cancer probably has got about an eight percent chance of having any effect on it um oh or probably zero um, and I said, well, why am I having it? And he just said, oh, Hannah, we just haven't got anything else to give you. Um, mm. So actually, I just thought that's not good enough. And I kind of, mm. Mm. I've gone from real victim, vulnerable, fearful mess, mm-hmm. um, you know, just on my knees with despair of mm. what to do and what to do next and but I don't know I just found some fight in me and maybe that is the police officer bit coming back so it definitely kind of um gave me some fight and gave me Mm. some again that stubbornness maybe and um I just thought no I'm not going to take that um it's not good enough for me so Mm. I started researching um online which I know they say is not very good but it worked for me it was useful for me and finding out where I could get treated for this differently what I could do for myself, help support myself. Mm-hmm. So I went to Germany, I went to Germany for, oh, okay. um, yeah, I found an oncologist there who does a very different treatment, uh, medical, but nothing to do with chemotherapy. Yeah. And um, and I had treatment with him very successfully. I had surgery here, but right. treatment with him in Germany. Yeah. Right. So I had no, no chemo or radio um, the second time. Oh, wow. Fantastic. Well, um, well done you for, you know, taking, you know, the whole issue by the scruff of the neck and <laughs> actually saying, right, you know, and so I know, I know that lots of people deal with these things in different ways, don't they? Um, and, uh, you know, some people, uh, you know, are quite happy to put their entire faith in, rightly or wrongly, put their faith in their, what they've been told by their their doctors and uh, others uh, less so and other people go into complete denial and, and everything you know there's all sorts of different um, responses aren't there so and as um, you say nothing's it's not wrong or right it's just really individual and something just um you know yeah just was a bit a, a bit of another light bulb but this just isn't okay anymore it's just not good enough right. prognosis so I'm gonna have to do something about it myself and and I would probably say that and I know this is a sort of slightly different topic but in terms of mental health and emotional health Mm. um there's tons of support out there tons of help but not every bit of help is right for that person is it or that medicine or whatever that treatment that therapy is right for each person you've got to go find that a little bit for yourself you know yeah yeah and from a work point of view um you obviously had to go off sick again um but I imagine, again, I don't know, but I imagine work was probably the last thing you were thinking about at this time. Yeah, I was I was off sick again for another nine months. And in that time, this time, a, a huge evaluation of what I had to do. Um, was I going to stay or was I going to leave? Um, yeah. And I think 
maybe now with what I know now, but that's hindsight and that never works out, does it? So um, with hindsight, could I have stayed in the job and looked after myself better and done it differently? Mm. Yes, but I didn't feel like that at the time. I just thought, you know, this is killing me almost really, to be quite blunt. Mm. Um, And Mm. I don't want to live like that anymore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah, I never never went back. I never had nine months off sick. Um, Right. And then, and to be fair, Ian, they'd have given me longer. They were great. They said, don't, because they knew I was considering leaving them. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. they were great. And they said, don't make a sort of knee jerk, if you like, mm-hmm. decision off the back of this. And you can take longer if you want. Yeah. But I think then my decision yeah. had been made, I knew. Yeah, no, I've got to say, having said everything I said about, um, you know, my own probably feelings, <laughs> feelings as well as, you know, I'm probably, I might be being a bit too hard on myself. But, you know, I know it. I've, I've had this conversation with other experienced police managers and and we all probably admit that we could probably do better when it comes to looking after people um but i do think generally the organization if someone is in a situation like you've just described i think i think the organization is pretty good at looking after people you yeah. know uh, across the across the board um but yeah then you get to that position of like okay so what am i going to do here am i going to I'm going to stay or am I going to go and you know so so when you left um uh how was your health by the time you actually sort of said right that's it I'm 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 gone now um so I was back in remission um and I but really I'd also realized I needed to sort of put a bit of a plan together of just how I became healthy as a whole I guess mentally emotionally physically mm. and I realized Ian I'd I, I didn't know how to do that. And I think a lot of us don't know how to listen to our ourselves, what's going yeah. wrong, what problems are there? How do I know if I'm struggling? How do I know that I'm not coping, if that makes sense? Um, yeah. I don't really know how to truly look after myself. We're not taught that in school, are we? We're taught no. math, science and you know French or something. We're not really taught about mental health, emotional health, not even really physical health. So set about learning that really. Right, okay. And um, and at what point did you decide to retrain and in, in, in to do what you're doing now? Well, really, I probably spent about a year after I left. Really, just didn't know what I was going to do. I do remember I was like so because I was. I'd, I'd got this plan together, but I was devastated to leave the police. I will say that devastated. It was yeah. my identity, my career, and it was hot. It was horrible to leave. And I do remember about a month after I left, I said to my husband, they haven't paid me. And he said, well, you don't work there anymore. You know, they're not going to pay you. And this horrible sort of sinking feeling that, because I don't, you know, I'd only ever had, I'd only ever had this sort of regular wage since I was 21. And yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, what am I going to do? Just bear with me one second, Hannah. We've got builders in the house that on, and they've left the door open, and he's drilling, and it's doing my fruit in. So, 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 so <laughs> I will. Don't worry, I'll edit this bit out. But let me just go and close the door because because it's doing my yeah. head in. No problem. Time. You go and do that. Yeah, no worries. There we go. Sorry about that. <laughs> Flip here, neck. <laughs> I don't know what it sounded like. He had like a like like a kangle hammer in the living room we're having building work done and um it was i just thought oh god this is going on forever so anyway apologies for that no don't worry at all so anyway we're talking about you and your sort of 
um, decision to retrain mm. and all of that. So where where did you um, where did you go for your sort of training, so to speak? Well, all over the shop, actually, it would just sort of happen quite organically. Um, personally, I'd done a lot myself. So I'd been to, oh, I literally did everything. And I went on courses and workshops and conferences and went for therapy, obviously, myself. Um, read books um, because I just wanted to absorb it all for myself at this stage, to be quite honest, and how mm. learn about yourself and how you can deal with and build resilience around mental and emotional health physical as well but I knew the mental emotional side was something I just didn't have a clue about at all um but as I learned more and more on how you manage your thoughts and emotions and stress levels and so on I did think started to think actually this is something I could do I think to with my skills in the police and then also this personal experience as well this is something I could do um, and help others who and I knew Ian as you would know there's a lot in a very similar boat um, yeah Yeah. so um so I did various things I did a well-being coaching course up in North Yorkshire Mm -hmm. um I did a mindfulness-based stress reduction course I've done meditation, I've done energy healing, I've done, um, I'm not classified as a nutritionist, but lots of sort of courses and learning yeah. about nutrition, yeah. sleep, um, managing your thought processes, being mindful, mm-hmm. being present, so lots of that. And then, so those are kind of the more generalized areas that I would train in and work in. Mm-hmm. But then about two and a half years ago, what I was still struggling with is some PTSD. Mm-hmm. Um, not, I was managing it really well, I suppose, with all the tools I was doing. So I'm not trying to say I had PTSD that, you know, affected me every day and unable to mm. sort of function as some people do. But I would have flare-ups, hideous flare-ups of PTSD mm-hmm. that would last about three days, um, of a whole host of things, but physical, physical pain, almost feeling Mm. like I was being paralyzed down my arms um, and emotional anger, Mm. bitterness. um. And if you don't mind me asking, was that in relation to stuff you did in the police? Was that in relation to your cancer diagnosis or was it kind of a bit of of everything? A bit of everything, but mainly the police and the police work, yeah. Not just what we'd seen and dealt with, but really as well the angerness and bitterness really was at the organization of how that was just left with us um mm-hmm. we deal with without sort of support or um help that's a really really good point actually and i haven't really thought about that before um but i think it's a really good point is that the number of people who i've spoken to on this podcast and elsewhere who've basically said it wasn't the terrible things that happened to me in police that made me ill. It was the way the organization is, the way that people get, not so much the way they get treated, but it's just like, again, I go back to that conversation I had with David Howell um, about policing and this, the, the culture. And he's very much... And, you know, I don't want to sort of spoiler alerts and listen to the podcast yourself when it comes out. But he's very much one about trying to um, help people be the best they can when they're at work, um, identify what it is that they are 
um, where the skills lie and then find a role within the organization that best fits that blah, blah, blah. And I said, words to the effect of, yeah, but if the whole organization at a strategic level is so unbelievably fucked that, that it doesn't almost matter how good you are at anything because the everyone has been set up to fail fundamentally then so your yeah. point your point that that the organization can be so dysfunctional that it gives people PTSD is right. yeah <laughs> really quite shocking isn't it yeah and that's how and actually in the people that I meet now with PTSD I would say again 99% of the time that's the issue yes there probably is some traumatic incident or difficult incident or whatever of course or maybe a drip drip a number of of difficult things but generally speaking it actually comes down to the organization whether they were supported whether it was they were just frustrated at every turn um, whether it was set up to fail, whether there was an investigation into them when they actually were just trying to do their best in a hideous situation. So I would say I, I, I'm absolutely with him. And if you, if, if you look at it anecdotally from the experience I had as somebody dealing with rape and sexual violence, I noticed the trend there that if somebody who had been sexually assaulted or raped, if after that they told somebody and were believed and were listened to, and then got help and justice and support. I don't mean that that wouldn't be a traumatic thing for them to deal with, mm. but they would deal with that so much better than the mm. person who either never told anybody because they couldn't, or they did and they were shamed, or they were disbelieved, or they were yeah. told it was their fault. Well, what's happening now is we're taking their bloody mobile phones off them and going, hun going hunting through the mobile phones, trying, yeah. trying to find evidence that yeah. they're lying. Yeah. So, you know, it's, a, what, it's what appalling, that isn't is it? Yeah, that is appalling. And what trauma that is doing on top of something already hideously traumatic. And that is where, I know that's anecdotal for me, but I saw that across the board regularly. Hmm. Um, and I dealt with historical sexual offences. So I saw that very regularly, that they'd either never said or they'd said and hadn't been believed or been blamed. Hmm. And the trauma and PTSD that sets in after that. So yeah, hmm. I'm with you, is how we're treated on top of difficult traumatic traumatic incidents yeah so um so you set yourself up then uh, as a as a therapist um as you said at the start for, for um you know people involved in emergency care or emergency response of one sort or another um so what percentage of the people who come to you are would you say are roughly are police officers um don't know just police officers I'd say about 50% are frontline workers so police okay. or police or NHS would be the main okay. group that I see in terms of sort of the blue light work yeah and do they get referred to you through their organization or how does it work no it's mainly word of mouth right um, a little bit for NHS obviously because I've got lots of contacts in the police and my husband still works in the police so you tend to get people know that they can come and see me I'm very glad actually Ian I kept it private because mm. 
at first I thought this would be good if I could work sort of almost for West Midlands Police, but now I'm glad I keep it really separate because I think people really value that I'm nothing to do with the organisation mm. or whichever, you know, force they come from. Yeah. I think they're glad actually I'm just nothing to do with, yeah. with their employers. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, and without you know you don't have to d disclose obviously uh, anything that would identify individuals obviously but um, what sort of stage of service are most people at who come to see you? is are they young at service or of, uh, mid mid career or what where are they yeah kind of really good question yeah really good question because I would say the most common length of service is between um, fifteen and and about twenty five years. I would have guessed that actually. If I had, if I had to guess, I would have said yeah. yeah. And I think it's because obviously the 15 years bit is because it started to take its toll and it's many, many years and so on. Mm. And and also because other things are happening in life, exactly. kids or divorce or that kind of stuff. So other things are, are, are layering up. But also I think it's because they're struggling and finding mm. the job difficult. Um and disillusioned and yeah. let down by the job. Well, they're in. They're a lot of them are in that sort of do I stay or do I go right. kind of um, you know and that it would whichever it's like heads you lose tails you lose isn't it? Do I stay in a job that's driving me nuts, yeah. um, but it's giving me financial sort of security I suppose, yeah. or do I go and take a step into the unknown um, with all of the insecurity and uncertainty that that entails and um yeah and there's some people who are doing some really interesting stuff now on LinkedIn aren't they around helping people kind of make that decision I suppose yeah absolutely and it is you know you're so right because they come and don't know really what they want to do but they know they've got sort of 10-15 years left to do and that's a long old time when you're struggling you know and you're not enjoying it and finding it really difficult mm. um, whereas I think if people have got sort of 27 28 years in and are struggling I think it's a sort of right I'll grit my teeth till, till the end of the line and I'll get over the end of the line then I can go so I don't mean I don't get anybody there but that's yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. is about that 15 to 20 yeah and, and all of the changes that they made to the pensions a few years ago um really a few people really got a kick in the teeth on that one didn't they yeah. you know signing they'd signed up to do what they thought was 30 years and then they find out that they're going to be doing a lot lot longer you know yeah, but, uh, yeah so where so um in terms of just be interested in given given the fact that you're an ex-police officer given the fact that you're currently speaking to a lot of people in the police you're married to a police officer so you're really immersed in it still aren't you um where do you think what do you think needs to change at the moment to sort of try and turn things around to make the organization better um needs another podcast doesn't it yeah um because i think we're probably sort of similar similar views on this a little bit because it's a big old ask i mean i'm with you i think it's quite well fucked down the line so <laughs> I you know it's a big old ask but yeah I was having to think about it because I knew that's this might sound daft in but I one of the things that I think should change is I think they should bring back canteens and police bars mm. um which actually I think if the government or funding or politics wanted to do it they could do it um yeah. those were two places that you were really treated as a human being and yeah. we've forgotten to treat police officers like human beings. They get treated um, like shit, don't they, now? 
particularly yeah. by managers, I think. Yeah, and we've forgotten how to treat police officers. Like we've forgotten that they're human beings and we mm. think they're machines and robots um, that won't react or respond or do anything wrong or bad. Um, mm. And that's not true. And they are now they're asked to eat and socialize and drink and have their downtime either at home, which might be difficult and stressful itself. And they mm. might not be able to share how they're feeling at home anyway. Mm. Um, and so we ask them to do their socializing, eating and drinking out in the public. And I just don't think that's okay. I think no, it's terrible. Yeah, I think it was awful. Um, you know, when, I don't know about you, but the canteen for me, one, you got to actually meet lots of other people throughout the station. So different officers, yeah, yeah, different yeah, ranks yeah, yeah. and so on. Yeah. But you were treated like a human. The, the staff yeah, yeah. knew you, they made you some fresh home cooked food. If you had to run out in the middle of your dinner to a job, they kept your food hot for you. Or for us, they made us yeah. fresh stuff when we came back yeah, in. Yeah. yeah. We were treated like people you could relax yeah. chill and, and as you said have that banter and that dark humor without mm. the public watching you basically and, and criticizing yeah. you let's be honest yeah. Yeah, yeah. um and the same with the with the bar um i don't know about you Ian, but we used to go at the end of our six shifts mm. and have a drink and it was just putting the shifts to bed it was um having some bit of normal conversation mm. maybe about your family or your home life so something a little yeah. bit away from work yeah, you yeah. can have that dark banter again yeah, safely yeah. without everybody listening yeah. um and i think they were infinitely more value than we we put we put on it and yeah. i think it would be a nice thing. i think they're, i think they're i think they're brilliant i think they're brilliant suggestions i i there's a slight little warning sign on my head flashing about the bar <laughs> only <laughs> only because i know that 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 road ends in tears for a lot of people doesn't it um but i 100 percent agree with you about the canteens 100 percent. and and i had many many uh, enjoyable fun times in please canteens with colleagues um and when i went to coventry there was still a canteen at chase avenue where i was working and it was it was nice you know at lunchtime if you were if you're doing early or breakfast or whatever you would the place was pretty full um there was a lot of banter a lot of banter with the kitchen staff yeah um and it was a really a bond place to bond as yeah. a team and as a as a as a unit you know and i think doing away with police canteens was the worst idea the terrible idea that had it was penny pinching yeah um and would have uh, you know the the value the value of a canteen yeah. went way beyond way beyond just the monetary cost of running a canteen yeah, 100% agree. And it also made you come away from your desk or put your, you know, we, we would come and we would take our staff vests off and our belt off or you'd come and just put your file down or whatever you were doing. And the radio, you know, the control room staff did their best to leave you, you know, for that 45 yeah. minutes. Yeah. And yeah, I just think they had far, far more value than mm. was mm. recognised. Yeah. No, I think that's brilliant. And it's probably not a bad place to draw to a bit of a, uh, a conclusion really well we'll quit we'll quit while we're ahead before we go into stories of uh, bad behavior in police bars but um... <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what you mean here oh god it's like oh my god yeah i remember it's like 
I mean, putting aside even the worry about drink driving and all that kind of stuff. I mean, you know, it doesn't take much for people to eat one pint of strong lager and you're probably, you know, in trouble these days, aren't you? But um, but listen, Hannah, um, I, I find that fascinating. I'd really like to do this again, actually, uh, at some point in the future. It'd be really interesting because I think we only touched on so much we could talk about here. Um, I'm really interested to you know be interesting to talk in in the future about some of the issues that get brought to you mm-hmm. as a as a well-being therapist you know with client confidentiality sort of first and foremost obviously but really interesting to sort of talk through some of those sort of anonymized case studies and see you know, if there is solutions or because I think I think if the organization, you know, if there's any people and I'm, I know there are people who are influential in policing, you probably listen to this podcast. What I'd say to you would be speak to people like Hannah, you know, get people like Hannah together in a room and say, OK, you know, what are the issues? What are the what are the top five top five issues that get brought to you? Yeah. And 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 some of those will be, you know, a horrible management word, isn't it? Quick wins, isn't it? There'll be some quick wins there. Yeah. And I think canteens is a really good example of that, you know? Yeah. Um, an oasis of calm, safety, and team building. My God, you know, I mean, what's not to like about that, isn't well, it? Not, yeah, I 100% agree. What was that about that we got rid of them? Because it was just, there was every plus, mm. wasn't it? Mm. Every plus. Yeah, and there's other there's other people like like David who I've talked about in this podcast. You know, it'd be interesting to get two or three of you together in a podcast to talk through some of these issues. People like you who are coming at this from a slightly different perspective, but who've got the who've got the scars of having been in the organization. So you understand it, you hundred percent get it. Um yeah, I think that would be really interesting to do that. If yeah, you're up right for that. Now, I'd love to. Yeah, really love to. Um, as you said, just talk about what I'm seeing in terms of, you know, I've got my personal experience as, I've, as we've gone over, but what I'm seeing regularly with officers that are coming to me and retired mm. officers as well, Ian, um, retired yeah. officers. Um, mm. And then, yeah, like what, what, what are some of those? As you said, yeah. maybe maybe quick areas we could help and then some slow mm. burners as well where we could help so yeah, yeah. well as of as of last week uh, I'm still having to pinch myself because I, I I I think um you know I think it's quite funny but, um my my podcast now now I get syndicated is that, is that the right word mm-hmm. um on the policing insight policing tv channel so policing insight um is, is sort of one of the premier I suppose subscription uh, police um, platforms. Um, I think it's web only, but uh, it's like a, they've got like a global footprint, and they've got a police thing called Policing TV, which they where they have videos, and they also have podcasts. And my podcast is now being put out on that. I agreed. Uh-huh. I said, yeah, yeah, I'm not precious about it. Um, no, but it's a lovely thing, isn't it? It's just reaching more people. And yeah, yeah, about- definitely. I, I actually don't think. I mean, they'll probably listen to this, but. I actually don't think they've listened to enough of my podcast to realize that actually I'm I'm like the <laughs> I'm like the most controversial person <laughs> in Britain. They obviously haven't listened to any of them yet, you know. Um 
because they're and I've given them this feedback that I think what they're doing is good, but I do think it's a little bit too on message. I think they're a bit too corporate and they do need to shake things up a bit uh, because more of the same, as I said, so more of the same will not work. You know, we need to shake things up in policing and things need to change, hopefully, for the better. So, so yeah, so let's get you back in the future with um, one or two people who are doing similar stuff and then we'll dive into some of those common themes. I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, fantastic. That'd be great. Brilliant. And can I just say you're looking really well and I'm, I'm hoping that you are really well. Yeah, like 10 years this year. So 10 years. Well done, you. Well and fab. Yeah, thank you. Fantastic. No, you're looking great. And um, yeah, I'm just so pleased that, um, you know, uh, everything is going in the right direction. So, yeah. It is. Yeah, thank you. Excellent. All right. Listen, it's been a real pleasure, real joy speaking really to you, particularly as an ex-Westmids colleague. So. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> it's nice to meet them. Nice to meet you. Oh, bless you. All right. You take care of yourself right. and I'll, I'll be in touch um, um, in the future. Fab. Thank you. All right. All right. Take care. Take Cheers. Care. Oh, so before you go, before you go, before you go, um, where can people find you? Oh, thank you. Um, Bluelightwellbeing.uk. Okay. So Hannah Bentley, website. Blue Light Wellbeing dot uk so it's not dot co dot uk it's just dot uk okay brilliant all one word blue light well-being yeah all one word fantastic all right you take care uh, and i'll, and I'll be in touch cheers then bye 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 if you're enjoying the podcast i'd be really grateful if you can give it a five-star review on either Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Equally, if you've read my book and enjoyed it, then I'd be really grateful if you'd give it a five-star review on Amazon, as that's probably the only platform you can use to review books, apart from Goodreads, I think. And if you want to contact me to tell me anything or ask me anything, you can do that uh, by sending an email to Ian, I-A-I-N, at ik-insights.com, which is my work email address. And finally, if you'd like to be part of the Tango Juliet Foxtrot Facebook site, you can find it, funnily enough, on Facebook. Thanks a lot.